Then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. I will establish the throne of David's line forever. His house and his kingdom will endure forever before me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. There before me was one like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Open-eyed, wide-eyed, the two men recognized Jesus. He was the one who was foretold. Well, if you would, go ahead and turn in a Bible to Isaiah chapter 53, whether a physical Bible or a digital device. And as you do that, greetings to those obviously here in the room, to those worshiping in the East Auditorium in Lovington. And I got a text from a friend saying, hey, what about Blue Mound? It's like, normally we don't call it every home, but fine, Blue Mound, you're in. Uh, so it's good wherever you are at, wherever you're worshiping, uh, to be here together looking at God's word. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Brian. I look forward to doing that with you. And a little bit of my story is um, I actually didn't grow up going uh, to church. I came uh, to faith uh, in high school and newish to the Christian faith in high school. I remember uh, the pastor at the church that I was a part of uh, speaking uh, really about what we're talking about in this series, this idea of foretold, of prophecies and statements uh, made in the Old Testament in whom we read about Jesus fulfilling later in the New Testament. And at the time, this is in the late 90s, so this is like back in the 1900s, which I feel like when I talk to my kids, that's like saying like the 1800s. It's, I don't know. Anyway, uh, there was a new book at the time, 98, uh, not so new now, but it was called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel, he was a graduate of the Yale Law School and was a legal affairs reporter for the Chicago Tribune and also a professed atheist. And so he set out to do an investigative report on Christianity really as a skeptic, but instead concluded not only that Jesus existed, but that he was in fact the Messiah. And so maybe there's an inner skeptic inside of you that needs that book to be your next read, The Case for Christ. Anyway, and so what was foretold and what was fulfilled in these prophecies about Jesus, what he raises in the book, one of the many questions he raises and addresses is, is it reasonable that you could say of all these prophecies that were in the Old Testament that tell about Jesus or tell about something that's going to be fulfilled, is it reasonable to conclude that it could be a coincidence that with all the people who've walked the face of the planet, that eventually one person could fulfill those prophecies. Is that a reasonable conclusion that that could eventually be a coincidence in which perhaps we see in Jesus? 
And so he set out to look into that, and he, of the more than 100 prophecies that speak to the coming Messiah from the Old Testament that we see and we understand as been fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament, such as you know, his birthplace being in Bethlehem, he, his lineage that Pastor Wayne talked about last week, he's going to come riding in on a donkey, things like that. Um, a mathematician that he interviewed in light of the book by the name of Peter Stoner, he calculated the odds of one person being able to coincidentally fulfill these prophecies. And obviously, uh, again, with hundreds, it's actually debatable how many there are, depending on what, it's anywhere from 100 to 400, depending on how you kind of count them, if you will. But uh, he, 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 he calculated that the odds of, let's just say, of someone fulfilling just eight of the more than 100 prophecies would be. And the chances would be for one person to fulfill just eight of the more than 100 prophecies are one in 100 million billion. Now, just for some context, first off, that's millions of times more than the number of people that even walked, have walked on the planet in the history of the world. Uh, furthermore, to kind of get our heads around what that might look like, he said it would be the equivalent of taking uh, silver dollars and covering the state of Texas with these silver dollars at two feet deep. And then marking just one of those silver dollars, placing it at random amidst the state of Texas, two feet deep in silver dollars, and then blindfolding someone and inviting them to wander the state at their will and randomly bend over and pick up just one of those silver dollars. And that actually being the marked one that was placed. So that, do you think you might know what the chances of those are? One in a million billion. Uh, the chances of one person being able to fulfill just eight of the more than 100 prophecies. From there, he went on to calculate what it would mean for one person to fulfill just 48 of the more than 100 prophecies, and the number came back at one in a trillion, 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 13 trillions. Not a 13 trillion, but all those on top of each. So it's incomprehensible. And so, as we think about that big picture, this case for Christ on his ability, on the reality, on the miracle, on God's hand in actually foretelling and the foretoldness of these fulfilled prophecies, uh, we want to look today at just one of those. One of those fulfilled prophecies that we see in Jesus that was given more than 700 years prior to his arrival, and quite specifically, surrounding the manner of his suffering and his death. And we see that in Isaiah 53 in our passage here today. So here's the prophecy for Jesus. It says in Isaiah 53 verse 2, it says that he, speaking to the future foretold Messiah, it says that he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Pastor Wayne talked about this, a shoot of David, a shoot of, or excuse me, of Jesse and David, kind of out of that lineage. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Instead, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and he was, and he was held in low esteem. Jumping down to verse 7. It says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And then one more, verse 9. 
It says that he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had no violence nor any deceit in his mouth. 700 BC, 700 years before Christ, Isaiah foretells the description of a man who has done nothing wrong, verse 3, no violence, no deceit, yet was rejected, despised, a man of suffering. Then in verse 7 and 9, it says, like a lamb to the slaughter, assigned a grave with the wicked. And so this prophecy is actually one of many that predict or foretell that the Messiah, the one who would come, would live a perfect, sinless, spotless life, but then would be executed as if he had done the opposite, as if he deserved to be assigned a grave with the wicked. And so the question I have, and maybe you have it as well, is, okay, I understand this is a prophecy foretold and fulfilled, but beyond that, like, why is this a prophecy? Like, why is this something that had to happen? Why did such an innocent, perfectly innocent man have to die as if he was the worst of the worst? Like, I'm not even challenging that it happened. I'm just asking, why did it? You ever ask that? Like, why did God design it that way? Like, what was the understanding behind how this had to take place for us to do what it is that we're doing here together today. Well, Peter, arguably the disciple that Jesus spent more time training and pouring into and teaching up uh, about uh, maybe almost three years fully into the ministry of the time that they had had together, Jesus asks of Peter, after all this time together, as recorded in Matthew 16, he asks this question to Peter. He says, so, all right, Peter, after all of this, who do you say that I am? To which Peter responds, you are the Christ. Like, you're the one. You are the son of the living God. To which Jesus affirms, yes, this is, this is, you get it, Peter. You have finally gotten it. And the very next verse in Matthew, Jesus goes on to remind us that, which he's already taught several times, but he's reminding the disciples again. He says, yes, I am this Messiah, which means, as it says in Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day, be raised to life. Essentially, he's saying, hey, remember all the stuff foretold in like, things like Isaiah 53? These are part of the story. These are part of the journey to which Peter takes Jesus aside, and it says that he rebukes him. He says, never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. To which the irony on this is never lost to me. Like in one breath, Peter's like, you're God. And then in the next breath, he's like, God, you're wrong. It's like, I don't know. To which Jesus rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. But if I'm honest, I get Peter's struggle. I get the question he's asking. Because it's like, okay, I come to this realization. I mean, put yourself in Peter's shoes. Jesus is God. So God, if you are God, you know, in the flesh, then why can't we just like, you know, nuke the bad guys, rescue the good guys, and get this thing done? Like, what is all of this that you're talking about? To which Jesus does in fact get this done, but in a different way. And in a way that he's going to continue and we're going to continue to piece here together. 
Maybe I'll put it this way. Um, as part of our Wednesday night equip classes here, uh, there's a class that we have called Starting Point. They're about halfway through that process right now. And there's a, a, a class coming up this Wednesday, actually, that Pastor Jonathan is leading, uh, where they're going to raise the question. I want to tear that page out of their book to raise the question as it pertains to us today. And the question that they're going to look at, or if you're in that class, you're going to look at this upcoming week, is you could say, what can take away my sin? Starting point, it's like this class for like, you know, those who are new to faith or returning to faith, or maybe you've been around faith for a while and you just want to regroup around the foundations of faith. And there's a foundational faith question is when it comes to my sin, what can take away my sin? Now that word sin, it literally means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. Uh, you could say that God has laid out these marks, these targets for us. And Jesus actually, he summed up those marks. He said into two marks, two commandments. He said the two greatest commands, you could sum them up this way. Number one, love God. And then with that, love others. And then he says that all the other commands hang on this. And what he means by that is that within all the other commandments, you can, you can find within those commands the first two. Love God love others. And so, for example, when you choose not to murder people, when you choose not to steal from them, when you choose not to commit adultery with their spouses, when you conclude you're not going to gossip about people, you're not going to be selfish, well, then you are in turn loving others. You are choosing to love someone else when you don't do those things. Furthermore, when you choose not to, you could say, put your love and your trust in things lesser then God, things like money and power and status and pride of self, then in turn trust and love God instead, well then you are greatest commandment. You are loving God. But the reality is when it comes to loving God, loving others, and all the requirements that come with each of those, we've missed those marks. We've missed those marks. And how do we know we've missed the mark? Well, for one, the Bible tells me so. It says it this way in Romans 3.23, it says that we've all sinned, we've all missed the mark, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all, saw, you could say, fallen short of the holy perfection of God in our imperfections. Our passage here today, Isaiah 53, verse 6, it says it this way, it says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've turned to our own way versus God's way, God's targets, God's mark. And so, yeah, we could say, we know we have missed the mark. We know we have sinned because the Bible tells me so. But you know how else we can know? You know how I know? <laughs> because me tells me so. Me tells me so. In fact, if I'm honest and I think about what tells me so, I'm not even sure it's sin that comes to my mind when I think about the me that me tells me so about. It's, it's like there's something else that gets my attention when it comes to missing the mark. And I don't know that sin is the word or the thing that pops in my mind, maybe it does for you, but I think it's something, you could say the effect of that sin. It's something that it's been getting, I would argue, all of us since Adam and Eve tried to hide it in the garden with fig leaves, and since they tried to hide it from God by hiding in the bushes. And that thing we could call guilt and shame. Guilt and shame. Yes, sin. Yes, we know sin, but we have beyond the sin, we have these reminders. We have these 
these cues, these clues that trigger within us these guilt and shame moments. And I was visiting with Pastor uh, Rick Grace after the service last night, who's also a, uh, he's our Disciple Heritage Fellowship Church liaison, so he helps us with this responsibility we have with other churches. Uh, But he's also uh, a licensed counselor. And he was talking about this as it relates to counseling, and he reminded me that, and if you've ever been through counseling, you've probably heard this understanding, is that when it comes to the experience of guilt and shame, that guilt is the experience or the, or the idea that, I've, uh, that I did bad, that I did something wrong, but shame says I am bad. So we have these things that say, man, I did bad, and so I am bad, I did bad. We have these reminders. These, and you, don't have to, and what I, it's, you don't have to be religious for this. You don't have to read this in the Bible. Uh, in fact, God, whether you believe him or not, says in uh, Romans chapter 1 that he has put within us, within humanity, these, this just the way in which we were created, this understanding of what it means to feel the difference between right and wrong, that it's instilled with us, that when we miss that right for the wrong, that we feel it. When we miss the mark, we know, maybe we won't call it sin, but humanity, we know what it means to feel wrong, to feel guilt, and to feel shame. And so maybe for you in life, you have these reminders that show up in weird ways. It's not something that's with you all the time, but there's these, these triggers, these cues, if you will. Uh, maybe for you, it's when you drive past a certain street, or that song comes on, or maybe when, whatever reason, you have to interact with that place that you used to work at, or maybe you just run across somebody with the same first name, or when someone brings up that, that one weekend, it was just that one weekend. Or when someone asks you maybe about, about college, you know, it's like, hey, tell me about your college days. And you say, I went. Let's just leave it at that. <laughs> I went. And so we have these reminders. We have these triggers that you could say they, they might start in our head, but they seem to end up in the pit of our stomach. And so... What can take that away? What can take away, yes, my sin, but also my shame and my guilt? And I would argue you've probably heard the answer to that. Even if you're new to this whole church thing, you've, you've probably heard somewhere along the way, just by living in this country, uh, that Jesus takes away my sin. Yes, Jesus, yeah, he, he died for my sin, right? Isn't that, isn't that what the Bible says or what people say? Yeah. And I would say, yes, you were right. Jesus died for your sin. This idea um, that one man could take away my sin if I choose to believe and receive it is something that's not new. We learn about it, obviously, in the New Testament where Jesus shows up. But we see that it was foretold about in the Old Testament and specifically today in Isaiah. And so how does that work? Looking at our passage, how is it that Jesus was rejected, despised, and suffered, and be slaughtered, and, 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 and again, why did he have to do that, and what does this have to do with my sin, my shame, my guilt? Why did it have to go this way? Kind of that big question that Peter's asking, maybe you're asking, why did it all have to go like that? And we see the answer in Isaiah, in our passage foretold. Again, we all know, like sheep, we've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We've all sinned. We all missed the mark. But it goes on. It goes on that the Lord, 
has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, we talked about that, that iniquity. That word literally means punishment. He has laid, the Lord has laid on him the punishment of us all. The sin, the iniquity, and it goes on in verse 10. It says, it was actually the Lord's will. It was the Lord's choosing to do this. He chose the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And then it says the way it plays out is is that the Lord makes his life, makes Jesus' life an offering for sin. Now, how does that work? Like an offering for our sin. Like I, I know what an offering is. That's something we do in church every week. That's, that's kind of a part of the thing. But, but how does God make Jesus an offering for our sin? Like how does that work? Again, how is it that this one man Jesus can take away my sin, can be an offering for my sin if I choose to believe and receive it? Well, when it came to sin, you could say being taken away in the Old Testament, uh, people then just like we do now, they knew they were, you could say, far from perfect. They knew that God, uh, people, Israel, they knew that as his people and as individuals that they, they had failed and that they regularly did fail to uphold the commands of God. They knew that just like we know since Adam and Eve, we've missed the mark ever since. And so they knew that somehow someone had to answer for that. Someone had to, you could say, pay the debt, pay back the price, pay back uh, this indebtedness for the sin, uh, this withdrawal, you could say, from living God's will and ways. And so thanks be to God for the people of that time, God created a way. He created a ceremonial religious act, experience to satisfy that debt, that rather than the people having to experience the death penalty, the blood penalty themselves of their sin, the, the iniquity that God allowed the blood of a sheep, a lamb, to be sacrificed, it says, to atone, which literally means to cover, like, like to cover up, to cover the sins. And so it's almost like a play on words. It's like, you ever heard that, you know, like, hey, I got you covered. Like, I got you taken care of. I got you covered. It's like, like God saying, like, I literally, I, through this, through this religious ceremony, I have you covered. I will cover your sin. I will protect you from the wrath that is due you, the punishment that is due you from me. And so, Another ceremony they would do actually to symbolize this on an annual basis is they would send an animal, uh, you might hear the term, a scapegoat. Uh, They would send an animal out into the woods to symbolically represent the sins literally being taken away from the people and leaving the place. These, these, These opportunities that God made to cover and to take away the people's sin. Now, the people knew that this was, you could say, far from fair. Um, you know, in the Old Testament law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the idea, you know, th- there's no way this is an even trade, that the blood of an animal could make up for, if you will, the sins of a human. But for 1,500 years, this satisfied the wrath of God, the holy, perfect God against imperfect people. Um, but then we fast forward 1,500 years, and we come to our question, you know, what does this Jesus have to do with all this? And so we're getting ready to see Jesus, and this guy by the name of John the Baptist is first on the scene. And he wasn't John the Baptist because he wasn't a Presbyterian or wasn't a Methodist. The reason he was John the Baptist is because he was a baptizer. He was giving people a fresh start. He was creating a new opportunity for people, uh, really, that wanted to come in droves for this fresh start. And he's getting, honestly, a lot of attention. He's got huge crowds, a lot of fanfare. Everyone's coming to see John the Baptist. Everyone wants to hear what he has to say. Everyone wants to get baptized by Jesus, or excuse me, by John. But then John says, hey, time out. I'm just the opening act. 
And he goes on to say in John 1, 29, he says, I'm just the opening act. He doesn't actually say that. That's my words. But he does say, look. Look, the Lamb of God. And the people at that time had been like, what? A sheep? Like, what? Are we going to sacrifice something? Are we send something? Like, what's, what's going on here? And it's like, no. The Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God. Of God, the headliner, the one I have been speaking about, Jesus, one whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie, prepare the way for the Lord. Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And so to the question, What can take away my sin? It is Jesus, the Lamb of God. And so that is what we would say, that's good news. That is the good news, that the penalty of eternal death is taken away. We are forgiven. We are given instead the gift of a new life, an eternal life that starts here and goes all through eternity, not just because of his death, but also because of his resurrection. This is the good news. But again, if you've been in church, or maybe you haven't even been in there at church that long, it's like, I know. We talk about that every week with communion, remember? It's like, we know this one. And so I would ask, of our passage, I would ask of us, yes, we know it's the good news, but is this, is this all of the good news? I mean, is that all of it? I mean, I'm not trying to sound ungrateful. I mean, there's obviously nothing more important than the eternal consequence of our sin being dealt with and taken care of by what Jesus has done. The idea that one man, Jesus, could take away my sin if I choose to put my faith and my trust and believe and receive. Truly, who among us that has accepted that is not thankful? But I would ask the question, is that, is that all of it? Is, it? is that all of the good news? Let me put it this way. A couple months ago, I had a, a sit down with a, with a friend, a heart to heart, where we talked about this, where, where he expressed, he said, yes, I have experienced that God has forgiven me of my sin and I'm thankful truly. But he went on to ask, but how do I forgive myself? What he was saying was, yes, I am thankful that in Jesus Christ, God has forgiven me. But how do I forgive myself? How do I, essentially saying, what do I do with not just the sin, but the shame, the guilt? What do I do with that? You, know, you might be familiar with the old hymn, you know, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And thanks be to God. My sin is washed away in the eyes of God. But what can wash away, you might say, my sin with me. What can, you could say, wash away my sin from my eyes, from me, myself, and I? Essentially, how do I forgive myself? And honestly, is that actually even possible? Well, the book of Colossians in the New Testament, um, is a, it's actually not a book. It's a letter written to a church, just like us, by the Apostle Paul, really addressing these kinds of things. This is after Isaiah. This is after John the Baptist. This is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And they, too, just like us, are trying to make sense. Like, why did Jesus have to die? What does this have to do with my sin and my shame and my guilt? Like, what, do we, what are we doing with this? And here's what the Apostle Paul wrote to that church, and he writes it to us. He says, hey, he, Jesus, he forgave all our sins. 
having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. Okay, got it. Jesus forgives my sin, but what about the whole shame and guilt? It says, he has taken it away. Nailing it to the cross. This is a comprehensive statement. The Apostle Paul reminds us that in Jesus Christ, he has taken away our sin, our shame, our guilt, and he has nailed it to the cross. He has taken it away. He has taken it away, which means you don't have to take it away. You don't have to take your sin away. You don't have to take away your self-sin from yourself. To my friend's question, you know, how do I forgive myself? Maybe it's your question. I know it's my question. How do I forgive myself? All of the good news of Jesus, all of it, is that you don't have to forgive yourself. Yourself has already been forgiven. You don't have to forgive yourself because yourself has already been fully forgiven. Jesus took it upon himself. Our sin and our guilt, our shame, our iniquity, the punishment, the con- he's taken it all away. And so as you think again, okay, I'm just a practical person to help me understand how this really works. Um, I love this passage later in Isaiah. I actually came across it yesterday in preparation for this, so it's not on the slides. But if you have a Bible and you want to flip over to Isaiah 55, this is gold when it comes to all of this. Isaiah 55, verse 8. This is a very popular verse. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard it. It says, for my th- you can't because you don't know what it is yet. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. Have you heard that? Like my, God's ways are higher than your way. Have you heard that? Just a little bit of hand showing. Maybe in the chat you can mention it. Yeah. Um, I've heard it before. You're like, yes, God's ways are higher than our ways. His ways are not our ways. But I'll tell you where I always think about it, or at least where I always seem to hear it. I always seem to hear it in the sense of like, when it comes to stuff I don't like. Well, I don't know. Why is it like, well, God's ways, he's higher than our ways, better than our ways. You know, he knows better. He's God, I'm not. And it's like, okay, all right. So it's kind of like this like trump card on every tough thing that happens in life. I'm just being honest, and I think you can relate to that. But the context is not that. So that's verse eight in Isaiah 55. But just before that verse, it says it this way. Verse seven, right before verse eight, it says, let the wicked... Forsake their ways. Let the unrighteous their thoughts. And so that's us. That's all of us. All of us who have, are unrighteous, who have all fall short. We all miss the mark, remember? It says, let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. And then, verse 8, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. You catch what he's saying? This, it's not like, well, tough luck. You don't understand how God works? Get over it. I'm God. You're not. No, it's the, what you don't understand are my ways about grace, pardon, mercy, forgiveness. It's those ways that are greater than your ways, which means you don't have to do this your way. You don't have to forgive yourself because yourself is already forgiven. Your way of trying to forgive yourself isn't going to work. It's not going to work. It is less than God's ways that are greater than ours, that are better than ours, that are higher than ours because his way is yourself is already forgiven. That's 
all the good news. He has taken it away. And where does he take it? Psalm 103, it says, he has taken it as far as the east is from the west. I don't know how far that is, but I bet it's a long way. Our passage in Isaiah chapter 53, verse four and five foretells this. Again, surely he took up our pain, our shame, our guilt, and he bore our suffering, our struggles. Yet, we consider him the one who was punished by God. He took it, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our consequences. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. And so, because this is truth, because this is good news, that it's not just meant to be known, but also applied, like this is actually something we're supposed to live in, like that whole like when it starts in my head and gets to my gut, like what do I do with that? How is it that I can make sure that I've actually let him take it away rather than keep picking it back up and shame and guilt and, and, and all of that stuff? How do I make sure that I really left it with him? Well, God's word, he, it's like he tutors us in this. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10, he says that when it comes to the stuff that gets in our head and ends up in the pit of our stomach, he says that we can actually demolish that. He says we can demolish these. Those are, that's the evil one. That's what he wants to leave us in guilt and shame. That when we, it says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, it says that we can take those thoughts, take every thought captive, and he says, and then do this, make it obedient to Christ. That instead of starting in your head and ending in the pit of your stomach, what starts in your head, you stop it there, you take it captive, you capture it literally, and you, nope, in the name of Jesus, I make it obedient to him. Make it obedient to Christ. You lift it up and really in thankfulness to God that rather than starting and stopping in the pit of your stomach, it starts here, take it captive, and you surrender it to the Lord. Then you experience what it says in Romans 12.1, the renewing of your mind. And so what does that look like? How do you take that thought captive? There's probably several things you could do, say, or pray, but here's a place to start. Oh, there's that song, there's that road, there's that place, there's that name. Ah. Lord Jesus, all of my sin, all of my shame, all of my guilt taken away. Thank you. All of my sin, all of my shame, taken away. Thank you. And the result, the result are these renewing of your mind, these new, you could say, mental memorials that rather than that trigger leading to shame and guilt and blah in your gut, it's, it's redeemed. It's, it's a victory. It's something that you don't have to dread, that you can smile at because not in your strength, but in the name and the strength of the Holy Spirit at work within you who is renewing your mind. And we know this because God said so. He said so. He said, Colossians 3.14, that he has taken it away and nailed it to the cross. All of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, taken away. To God be the glory. And so why don't we give thanks for that reality here today. 
Father, we thank you for your truth that is not just to be known, but to be lived, that this is life and life to the full. This is the kind of life, the freedom, that your ways are better than ours. And so together we thank you. We thank you that all of our sin and all of our shame is taken away. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. And so, we know that the way in which Jesus made this happen uh, is something that we knew before the sermon even started, that he died for our sin. But did you know, or maybe I can remind you of if you did, that when it came to a crucifixion, someone dying on a cross, that they literally didn't die because they were nailed to a cross. So what they would actually die of is suffocation. Because as they hung there, they would have to lift themselves up by their legs to get a breath because they couldn't breathe. And eventually, um, the soldiers would come by if they were still alive and hadn't uh, suffocated to death. They would break the legs of um, the prisoner um, so that they would indeed suffocate. But when they came to Jesus, uh, he had already already died. And not because he suffocated necessarily, but because he bled. He bled out. We we could assume because of the flogging and the beatings they experienced the night before, he bled. What can take away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, which foretold and fulfilled another prophecy that his legs would not be broken. He was not broken. That just like a spotless, perfect lamb was to be sacrificed in the Old Testament, the Lamb of God, perfect, spotless, an offering for you and for me. And so to ensure that we would never forget how this was made possible in the sacrifice of God's one and only Son, Jesus, with his original disciples, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread and a cup, and he said, remember my life and my blood given for you. And so may we remember together as we take the bread, remembering his body given for you. And may we remember his blood poured out, nothing but the blood. Let's remember together. Thank you. Amen.
not for good that I have done, right? This is all my righteousness. This is all my peace. The death and the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ, he has paid it all. And we believe that to be true. And I think sometimes we still find ourselves looking around in the world and wondering, God, why, why this? Why this brokenness? Why this hurt? Why are there children without homes? Why are people dying? Why is there hurt? Why is there st sin still in the world? Though we as believers, we cling to the hope that the story is not over, right? We are promised, it is foretold that he will come again. And we look to that promise with hope and full expectations that one day, one day he will come and he will make the story complete. So have a seat. We're going to sing one more song um, that speaks to that promise. And we hope it brings um, promise and light to you. We know that the 
be healing. Hallelujah.